A week ago yesterday, as most of you know, I'm sure, there was a major earthquake in Ecuador, 7.8 on the Richter scale, over 600 confirmed deaths, more than 2,500 people seriously injured, and more yet to be discovered. Now, there were aftershocks there even yesterday, 6.0 magnitude aftershocks, mudslides everywhere, many buildings damaged, completely collapsed, even a major highway overpass collapsed, killing a number of people. It's a reminder to us again that life has its tough moments. People all over the world face uncertainty and even death on a day-to-day basis. What everyone needs all over the planet is a sure foundation of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. We have to build our lives on the Lord Jesus and claim the God life that only He can give. Our, Our final look this morning at the Sermon on the Mount is a look at two ways to construct your life. But what we're going to see is that there really is only one way. And that is by building it on the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting our complete trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And receiving that gift from God of eternal life. The God life. And everything that goes with it. The person who trusts Jesus as Savior from sin and Jesus alone, and then lives a life of obedience to God and His ways, is the person who finds life to the full each day. So in this section, beginning at verse 24, Jesus gives the closing parable of this great teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to read the text and then we'll get into it uh, verse by verse. Therefore, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And then the chapter concludes by saying that the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let's look at verse 24, first of all, and talk about the careful construction of a life built on Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, you'll recall, was a builder. His father was a carpenter, and Jesus worked with his earthly father, Joseph, until he was 30 years of age. And then he began his public ministry, his three-year ministry that led all the way to the cross. So he uses this word picture of two builders. And he does it as a way to illustrate how people respond to his words. One person responds, understands, acts on what he understands and knows, and builds a house that is built on a solid foundation. The other person hears but doesn't really understand and foolishly builds his house on the sand. 
and it doesn't survive the storms. He refers here to people who are wise and foolish. Wise or foolish. And throughout Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, we see those contrasts. Wise, foolish, righteous, wicked, sheep, goats. The point of of that is to make this very important point in today's society, and that is that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Our world today would argue that point. They would say there is no such thing as absolute truth. Whatever is right for you is right for you, but it doesn't necessarily apply to me. Jesus, who ought to know, says there are wise people and there are foolish people. There are people who understand the truth and act upon it. There are people who don't understand it or refuse to act upon it. Black and white when it comes to truth. You see, if you look at verse 24, and then again at verse 25, uh, and what happens, then at verse 26 with the foolish man, you see that both men, the wise man and the foolish man, both men heard Jesus. They heard, but their actions were very different. One builds with care. One has the right foundation. The other doesn't build with care, doesn't pay attention to what he's doing, and loses his house. What an important matter it is to build our lives on the rock-solid foundation of the truth about Jesus and who He is and what He's done for us at Calvary. Paul teaches this important matter of building on the right foundation. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 and 11 says, According to the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But let each man be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If I'm going to build a a new home, or if you're going to build a new home, the most important thing we can do, actually, is get a a pay-for or have somebody design for us a set of architect's plans, detailed architect's plans. And in most cities, then, I need to take those plans to the building inspector and have them approved. I need to follow certain building codes, or perhaps a homeowner's association set of regulations or rules. Think of how silly that would be to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars for detailed architect's plans and then roll them up and throw them away and say, I'll just build any way I want. Who needs building codes? What's the big deal? Well, you know what the big deal is. You can't build if you're not going to build according to building codes, if you're not going to submit some plans. I use that illustration to say this. There are people who believe that there are other teachings out there besides the teachings of Jesus that they think can lead to being right with God. But they are totally wrong. Only through Jesus Christ can we be right with God. There are people out there who believe that there are other scriptures written by mere men that can point us to God and to heaven. And again, I say, that's not true. Only the Holy Bible 
God's revealed truth to us can point us to heaven. Does that make Jesus intolerant of false teaching? Yes. Does that make His followers who believe Jesus' teachings intolerant of other teachings? Yes, it does. But think of how important that intolerance is. Why would we be intolerant? It's because the authoritative declarations of God's Word and how a person can be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ are what is at stake. Eternal life is at stake. That's pretty serious stuff. So, secondly, in verse 25, we see that we have to build on a firm foundation. Jesus is very clear here in these verses that there are two requirements for building a life that will last, a life that will prevail over any difficulty. First of all, we have to listen. Look at verse 24 again. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Same wording in verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine. We have to listen. But then we also, secondly, have to act. That's what it says in verse 24. Everyone who hears these words and acts upon them. Or, contrasting in verse 26, everyone who hears these words and does not act upon them. Hearing, listening, and acting. Both men listened. Only one acted wisely in locating a solid piece of rock that he could build his house on that would stand against the elements. So Jesus is teaching here that what characterizes the person with real faith in Jesus Christ is summed up in one word, obedience. Obedience doesn't save us. That can only be through the blood of Jesus Christ. But obedience demonstrates that what we have believed is true and that it is serious stuff to us. We used to teach a a chorus to kids in Kids Club years ago. And I'll uh, sing it as a special number this morning. It's real short. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands. Doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately. Joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. It's that simple. Obedience doesn't save us, but obedience shows that we believe that our faith in Jesus Christ is real. Years ago, I preached a series of messages on the book of James, and I titled it simply, Prove It. That's really what James is all about. James is saying to the person who professes to be a Christian, Prove it. Show it by the way you live. By your obedience. Again, obedience doesn't save us. But it's evidence, it's fruit, it's proof that we know Jesus as our Savior. And please know, Jesus didn't leave all of this teaching up to one sermon on one mountain on one day. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. I believe it was a complete package, a one sermon 
15 minute dissertation. But this is the kind of thing that he taught all the time. Look again at verse 29 at the end. It says, He was teaching them as one having authority. The way that's worded in the original language means that this was a habitual practice of His to teach these kinds of things. He taught them again and again and again. Why? Because He wanted more and more people to listen and then to act on what they'd heard. Let me put it this way. We call the study of God theology. Theo, T-H-E-O, means God. And then the ology part means the study of. Theology, the study of God. But it has to be more than just the study of God. It has to become theo-life. It has to become the life of God in me. And that happens by faith. So it's very important that we understand what Jesus is teaching here. Obedience is the fruit of someone who has theo life. The obedience referred to here is the obedience to the command of God to be right with His Son. Because only through His Son can we be right with God for all of eternity. By God's grace alone. There is no other way to have assurance of living the God life and of spending an eternity in heaven. It's the only way to have the right foundation for my life. Clear back in Isaiah 28, verse 16, God says, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in Him, that stone is a person, that cornerstone is Jesus, he who believes in Him will not be disturbed. Just like that one man's house was not disturbed when the storms came. The other man's was. The Gospel of Luke chapter 6 has the same Sermon on the Mount. A little bit different wording in a few places. For example, in verses 48 and 49 of Luke chapter 6, it tells us that this wise builder dug deep and also that his house was well built. What that means simply is that he understood Jesus' words. He got it. And he acted upon what he understood. He also understood that storms are going to come. You ever have a storm in your life? We all have. Some more than others. But Jesus alone has the divine authority to tell us how to build on that foundation. Ravi Zacharias, I'm sure many have heard of him, tells about doing a lecture several years ago at The Ohio State University. As he was being driven to the lecture, they passed what was called the Wexner Art Center. The driver commented to Ravi, this is the new art building for the university. It's a fascinating building designed with postmodernist view of reality. Ravi described this fascinating building this way, and I'm quoting, the building has no pattern. 
Staircases go nowhere. Pillars support nothing. The architect designed the building to reflect the postmodernist view of life. It went nowhere and was mindless and senseless. Zacharias said, I turned to the young man describing it, the driver, and said, did they do the same thing with the foundation? The young man laughed and said, you can't do that with a foundation. And he's right. You can't have a foundation that goes nowhere and leads to nothing. The foundation is critical to any building. Only a foolish person would build without a solid foundation. So I've called this final point of the message this morning the shifting sand of unbelief. And I called it that because still today, just as then, how we build on truth determines everything. And the foolish person who thinks that living the good life is all there is and that that good life somehow will satisfy and it will not isn't getting it. It's not making sense. Or he's rebelling against what he understands as truth. The shifting sand of unbelief. Again, we looked at the foolish man. He built his house on the sand. By the way, the same exact thing happened to both men. They probably lived in close proximity to each other. So that the same storm impacted them both. The wise man was not... Uh, devastated at all. His building stood. The foolish man lost everything. The same things exactly happened. The rain came down, the text says. The floods came. The winds blew, burst against the house. One man's house survived intact. The other man's house collapsed. He might. I thought about this as I was working on this message. He might have been thinking to himself... And a lot of people do this these days with devastating events that happen in their life. That's not fair. How can your God cause His house to stand and mine to fall? That's not fair. The issue isn't fairness. The issue is rebellion or obedience. That's what it comes down to. One man said... I really probably should build on a solid foundation like that other guy over there. But, eh, I'm going to build on sand. Well, then you get what you pay for. His building collapsed. He didn't follow good plans. He didn't plan on putting a solid foundation under his house like the other builder. Today, in almost every community there is, you have to follow universal building codes. Here's a quote, by the way, from Universal Building Code. All homes require a continuous foundation extending at least 12 inches below undisturbed soil. Did this other man follow that? No. He put it right on top of a sand dune. (laughs) That wasn't smart. But the foundation makes all the difference in earthly buildings and in life lived for God. Because it's the difference between a life lived in hell, separated from God forever, enduring eternal punishment, 
or a life lived in the very presence of God in heaven. The foundation means everything. Let me apply this, as Scripture does, to the church, also called the body of Christ or the bride of Christ, the building of God. The foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. By the way, there are no additional apostles and prophets today. That would be like putting another foundation ten stories up in your building. You don't do that. Foundations at the bottom. The building is built on that foundation. Ephesians 3.20 makes it clear that that foundation is the apostles and prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone or the central figure of the church. The Bible also talks about our God life. A life of righteousness and peace and joy that God gives just because He's a gracious God. And we receive it by faith. But here's what Paul says about that life in 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. He says, Instruct wealthy believers to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. I love those last two words. Life indeed, or really living. Not just the good life, not just enjoying the things the world has to offer, but life indeed, real life in Jesus Christ. Now, as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it would be an exciting thing if we could read that everybody on the mountain that day, his disciples and many others, who heard this message would say, yes, I want Jesus as my Savior. But that's not what the closing verses tell us. We do read that they were amazed. Verse 28 says that. They were amazed at His teaching. And it was because it had that ring of authority to it, unlike the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders of their day. But the truth is this. Many of those same people who were amazed, they said, at His teachings, not even one year later were saying, crucify Him. Get rid of Him. We don't want Him. He's not real. He's not the real thing. He's not who He says He is. We don't want Him. So, yes, at that time they were amazed, but largely unmoved. And I submit to all of us today that if we're going to hear the Word of God, even a series like this, 15 messages long, nothing spectacular about that, it's just that there's plenty to cover in this Sermon on the Mount. If we hear a series of messages like this, and we are unchanged in any respect... We are also then, like that crowd that day, unmoved. Whether we claim we've been amazed at the teaching or not. So again, hearing and acting upon. Understanding and obeying. They go together. In the life of a person who really is now living the God life. 
And you know, it's always been that way throughout history. The God life is given only to those who put their trust in the rock, the Lord Jesus. But what we've seen in this Sermon on the Mount is that with that God life come many foundational truths, rich blessings that are solely the result of God's grace. And what I want to do right now is kind of take a quick review starting in chapter 7 and working backwards to chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And as we go back backward, you don't have to follow verse by verse. And I'm not going to go verse by verse. I'm going to give you some summary statements of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount as far as what God has done for us. Because that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying, here's the life you can have in God. Here's the life you can have if you know my Father. Here's the life you can have if you trust me as your Savior. Anything other than that is a life headed for destruction. So what we discover as we start here in chapter 7 and work backwards is that this life starts with faith in Jesus Christ alone. Remember last week when we talked about those who would someday stand before Jesus, the judge of all the earth, and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things for you? Do you remember what Jesus says to them? Depart from me. Get away from me. Separate from me. I never knew you. I never recognized you as part of a personal relationship with me. And off they go to a Christless eternity in hell. So, this God life starts with faith in Jesus Christ. It proceeds in the power of God. He's the one who gives us the power to live that God life. It's not something I can do on my own. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's some pretty tough stuff. Some pretty descriptive statements about the person who's really walking with Jesus, and I can't do that on my own. I never have been able to, nor have you. It proceeds in the power of God who enables us to obey. But we also learn then that God gives us answers to prayer. How many of you, with a raise of your hand, would tell me that you had an answer to prayer within the last week? Anybody? An answer to prayer. Praise God. If I extended the time, I'm sure I'd include some more. God answers prayer. That's His very nature. And He's such a good God. Thirdly, in chapter 7, we saw that God blesses us with valuable pearls of wisdom from His Word. As we go to chapter 6, we see that God is the source of every single blessing that has come our way, ever come our way. Some of you may remember that old hymn, Count Your Many Blessings, Name Them One by One. Honestly, if we really did that, we could do that for hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months. And we would never cover the list of all the blessings God has given to us. We just couldn't. He's that good of a God. 
We also discover in chapter 6 that God uses us to impart to others some treasures that we've laid up in heaven. That is, that we get to be a blessing to other people. We also find out that God forgives those who are truly sorry for their sins. That's what communion is all about. It's about the forgiveness of God through the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that forgives all our sins. There's nothing that you've ever done in your past that God has not already forgiven. Already. You need to accept that by faith. And we also saw in chapter 6 that God rewards us for fruitful service. And the way He does it is by gifting us through the Holy Spirit with the ability to have even more service and ministry to others. And then as we come to chapter 5, we learn that God loves us and He enables us to love others the way He loves them. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 tells us that the love of God is literally shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He fills us up with His love. So now we can love the way He loves. We also found that God is truthful at all times. And so He enables us to be truthful and to be honest with Him and with each other. It's very refreshing to meet people who are honest, who are not trying to cover things up, who never let anybody into their little world, who want to make it look like they're perfect when we know they're not, just as we're not. We also discovered in chapter 5 that God is faithful and enables us to be faithful to Him. He's compassionate. I'm listing all of these things because, for one reason, because yesterday in our men's Bible study we talked about the doctrine of God, what the Bible says about His nature, His character. And these are just some of those many statements that Jesus is teaching us here in this sermon. God is compassionate. He cares about people. I mentioned last week the, the transcendency of God, the fact that He is above His universe and He's this awesome, great God who's in control of everything, but He's also vitally interested in every detail of your life and mine. Aren't you glad for that? Yes. He cares about everything going on in your life. And so we then, because God is compassionate, can show compassion toward others. We also found that God's Word, His written Word, the Bible, can be fully trusted and give stability to our lives. But I have a caveat. And I'll, I'll demonstrate it for you. This is mine. This Bible is mine. Oh, I love the Bible. Carry it around with me every day. If I uh, just keep it under my arm like this, walk around town, I always have it with me. It's on the dash of my car. I carry it when I get out, put it back on the dash when I get in. When I get home, I put it on the shelf at home, leave it sitting there. It sits there 
from Monday through Saturday. I drag it back out on Sundays and I bring it to church. Am I really impacted by the Bible? No. What do I need to do to be impacted by the Bible? I need to open it and read it. And when I understand it, which I can by the power of the Holy Spirit, I need to act on it. That's what Jesus is teaching. So it can be fully trusted. It gives stability to our lives, but only if I turn to it on a regular basis and read it and apply it. One of the tasks of a preacher, and it's not an easy task sometimes, I'll admit that, is to tell people, here's what the text says, here's what the text means, but also here's how this text applies. Sometimes that application can be the tough part. Because that first has to come through me, right? I'm the one working on the sermon. So you can pray for me about that. I don't ever want to stand in the pulpit, and I can't say I never have, but I don't want to stand in the pulpit and just preach a sermon and then say, there, I'm all done. I want it to impact me, too. I want stability in my life as well. We also learned in chapter 5 that God helps us shine His light into a very dark world. And I have to tell you, you probably recognize this, it's getting darker all the time, spiritually speaking, morally speaking. Darker all the time. Sometimes it just amazes me how sinful our world is today. We've got all these debates going on out there about Uh, transgenderism and uh, LGBT people and can they use this bathroom or that? Come on. How low have we sunk? Seriously. And finally, at the very beginning of chapter 5, the uh, blessed statements that Jesus makes there show us that God delights in granting His approval on those who walk with Him. He allows us to find real joy. So when He says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, blessed are these people and these people and these people, He's talking about those who truly find joy in walking with the Lord Jesus. Let me close the message this morning with a very simple illustration. I've never been to Italy, but uh, I've read a lot about uh, an item we call the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Most people don't realize that uh, the Leaning Tower leans because it is in Pisa. Pisa is the Italian word for marsh or mud. The Leaning Tower of Pisa leans because it was built on a marsh. It doesn't have a solid foundation under it. And because it doesn't have a proper foundation, it's not able to remain stable. So every year it leans, get this now, one-twentieth of an inch. And we might say to ourselves, well, that's not much. You know, 20 years before it leans an inch. 
Well, the Leaning Tower has been there a very long time. And it's leaning a long ways now. And at some point, it's going to fall over. Unless it's propped up artificially. It's going to fall over. It is headed for disaster. And that's also true of the person who hears the Word of God or reads the Word of God, hears a sermon, and says, I don't care. They are headed for disaster. That's just the truth. I have to be honest. That's it. They're headed for disaster. The storms will come. They always do. But if we're living the God life through faith in Jesus Christ, we can withstand those storms and come out on the other side fully rejoicing in Jesus Christ our Savior. And that's what communion is all about. I'm 